This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So this week on the podcast, I have on Rusty. His social media or IG handle is RTS underscore Proverbs 21V19. So he's got a, a, a great social media and a good following there, and for good reason. He's just a stand-up human being, went on some great adventures this year, and we kind of recap those and just get talking about hunting. So we talk about uh, caribou in the Arctic, uh, we talk about elk hunting, touch on mule deer towards the end as he's killed some great muley bucks as well, and, and really tap into the instincts and decision making on a hunt. But it just made for this great conversation. I really enjoyed it. This is my first time having him on the podcast, but definitely have to have him on again uh, as he absolutely killed it and really enjoyed the conversation. So uh, we'll get right into it. Just want to thank a couple sponsors. I want to thank Zamberlin Boots. I've been using Zamberlin boots for the last few years, and they are the best boots and shoes I've uh, I've ever had on. Like they keep waterproof for multiple years. They're just they just don't cut any corners in their material, in their craftsmanship. Uh, they're just great boots for all the different hunts I do. So you guys know I like the tennis shoes. In fact, we talk about it in this episode as Rusty's started to use these low-cut tennis shoes and really likes them. So my favorite pairs. Uh, I really like Zamberlin. They came out with this Anabasis. It just feels like a trail running shoe. In fact, I ran four miles, ran under a seven-minute mile last night in these as they're a uh, waterproof shoe that has a vibram sole, but they just have quite a bit of, of flex to them. Uh, so they're just a, a great shoe. I've really liked them. They also make them in a mid-cut if you want a little bit more ankle support. Uh, the other one that I, that I really like is the Saluth. They make the Saluth in a shoe, so it's just a little bit stiffer. It's good for real tough terrain like I wore them this year on my goat hunt in B.C., they also have a Vibram sole. They're also waterproof. And, and I'll wear these even in the late season wearing gaiters to keep my feet dry. Uh, they're just an amazing shoe. They also make that one in a mid-cut. Uh, and they just have like a bunch of different options for all your different preferences on there. Uh, there's another one that I really like that's in a mid-cut. That's their 320 Trail Light Evo GTX. Uh, I've really liked this boot. I still own a pair of them and use them on specific hunts. But really, they have a different boot or shoe for all your different preferences. And these lightweight hiking shoes, you know, a pound on the foot is like 10 on the back. And I'm just loving these things. Like, I I wear these shoes uh, for nearly every hunt I do. But you can find one for all your different personal preferences. And um, I just guarantee they're going to be some of the best boots and shoes that you've ever used. So thanks to Zamblin for their support on the podcast. I also want to thank Matthews. Uh, Matthews just came out with their new lift. Uh, that new lift bow is amazing. I've been spending a bunch of time with it every single day, every single evening, getting that thing doped in, got some new arrows built up. 
getting a really good tune out of those and just shooting some amazing indoor and then my outside groups um, are, are really good with this bow. So uh, just building a new relationship with this thing, but I like it. I'm getting about 10 feet more feet per second performance out of it than last year's. Uh, it's just as quiet, if not more quiet, dead in the hand, great draw cycle, just an incredible bow. Uh, so impressed by this thing, and it's going to equal a lot of successful hunts for me in 2024. So if you're in the market for a new bow, this lift is a great one to go check out. Uh, they make it in a longer axle-to-axle. -axle. I'm using the 29 and a half. Uh, really enjoying this thing. Man, it's just incredible. I don't know how this R&D, these engineers are able to improve these things every year, but they definitely are making me a more effective bow hunter. So if you're in the market for a new bow, uh, just go test them out and go shoot them next to the other bows out there and um, see if it's a good fit for you. But it's just an incredible bow. Matthews, uh, they're just outdoing themselves every single year. And this lift uh it is is incredible best bow i've ever shot and really building a good relationship with it so go check that out i also want to thank black ovis black ovis is an internet retail shop that has absolutely everything you need for your next hunt uh, you can save 10 percent by putting in the promo code elevated 10 uh, they carry all the top name brands as well as their own name brand. A great shop, knowledgeable staff. So check those guys out. Also check out Camo Fire. You can catch some incredible deals there. 80 new hunting deals every 24 hours. You just download the app and uh, wait for the piece of gear that you're looking for to come up and uh, save a pile of money. So with that over at Eastman's, I'm getting really excited. So we're going to release my BC Archery Goat Hunt. It's going to, I believe it... It releases here on the 22nd, so uh, like right before Christmas. Uh, you guys got to check it out. I'm really proud of it. It's a bow hunt in the most extreme terrain imaginable. So I'm um, helping out with the edits there and then also filming a couple podcast pieces for it. They're going to edit in. Uh, but the rough draft, I've seen the first rough draft and now the second rough draft came in this morning. And um, man, I'm really proud of this one. So uh, you guys got to go check it out for me. You can find it on Eastman's Hunting TV and um, just search the Beyond the Grid on there and you'll find it. There's a bunch of my episodes on there. You can probably catch six or eight episodes on there. And I try to do a good job of mixing in some educational stuff that'll help you hunting public ground and, and help you understand kind of my strategy and mindset uh, like on this goat hunt, you'll be able to see me at my lowest low five days in. And I had, I was in range of a goat that ended up winded me and busted me. And it was just a giant billy. And I just climbed down a sheer cliff to make a stock. But you can catch these moments and catch me, you know, at my low and see how I pick myself up and, um, how I finish out that hunt. So really, um, Really proud of how this one came out. It's a hunt from this year, and it'll be released here in about a week or so. So check that out. Check out my other podcast, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, I do with Dan Picard. The next episode that drops next week, it was a, a mix of question and answer and also draw strategy, but it's all about this upcoming season and how I approach uh, getting tags and, and making sure that I have hunts for the upcoming year. So you can hear that on Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a Bow Hunter. And, um, 
again, everything we're doing over there at Eastman's. Check out the magazines, uh, Eastman's Tag Hub 2.0. It's got a revamped system. I'm just starting to work through it on the desktop. It's amazing. It's a bunch of compiled information that helps me apply for all these hunts each and every year. We still have the Mule Deer course. Everything I know about mule deer, you can further your mule deer learning curve and learn how to travel to these western states and be successful. Uh, you put in the promo code uh, BRIANMDC, it'll save you 10% on it. And um, man, with that, let's get into this podcast. It's a great one with um, Rusty, super knowledgeable, diehard hunter, loves hunting elk, mule deer, caribou, made for a great conversation, great episode. Thanks again to him for being on. And um, let's get into this thing. I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. All right, man. Um, you figured out the tack. That's always a good thing between bow hunters when we can connect and get video and audio and everything. <laughs> that's right. It's always a good thing. Good old technology. Technology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, good, man. You had a heck of a season. Looks like you went on a bunch of good adventures. Yeah, this has been a... This has been a fun year. Always, you know, every once in a while you have a, an amazing season, an amazing year, and this is this has definitely been one of them. Dude, I would say, like, um, really fun to see, like, your caribou hunt that you went on and then those couple bulls that you killed were just unreal, dude. Two monsters with your bow. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It, it's pretty fun. I packed in a, gosh, a tight season. We did caribou. My buddy and I did caribou in August. Then we had uh, archery antelope in August and then straight into September and a couple of bull tags. Um, so, yeah, I had like two two months there that were just packed full of fun. Yeah, that's the way we like it. Uh, what was your buddy that you did the caribou hunt with? R- Russ Meyer. Yeah, Russ. Russ Meyer. Man, that guy is yeah. such a killer. He's such a great bow hunter. Goes on so many good adventures. I, I really like that guy, like uh, like what he represents. But yeah, you guys had a heck of a trip up there, huh? You're up in the uh, up in Alaska, up there. Yeah, we were up yeah. in Alaska, and you're real quick. You're you're totally right, Russ. For those that know Russ, like he's world class archery hunter. Um, and not only is he kind of fun to watch and see some of the things he does, but he's he's a world-class guy as well. Just a good, good dude. Um, couldn't have asked for anybody better to go to the Arctic. So we're, we're up in the Arctic Circle, uh, north of Alaska, uh, top of Alaska. Um, and if you go do a hunt like that, you want to go with somebody you trust, and Russ is somebody I trust. So, uh, yeah, great experience. Have you done caribou before, Brian? Yeah, yeah, I have. I've done a, a couple, let's see, two caribou hunts and then another float trip where it was kind of moose and caribou. They're amazing, okay. aren't they? They're so, they're built for a bow and arrow. I mean, other than the really open terrain and things, but I just think a caribou is like a antelope with 400 inch horns. Like they're, they're really fun to hunt with a bow and arrow. Like it's a lot of action and making plays and stuff. So I really enjoyed it. How about you? Have you ever done it before? Yeah, I did. I did my first caribou hunt in 2018. Um, and that's actually back when I met Russ and, uh, same thing. We went up to the Arctic, we go up to Kotzebue, Alaska, and basically it's a DIY drop camp we do. So, uh, you have a transporter that flies you out, uh, dumps you into the Brooks range for a week, um, and picks you up. And so I did that back in 2018 with a buddy. And then, uh, this last August was the second time I've done it with Russ up there. This time we went in August, uh, which I have to tell you, 
I wanted to do September the first time I did it hard horned was what I had in my mind. I needed to have a hard horned caribou. Um, but that August trip was awesome. Uh, we went the first week of August. So you could literally hunt 24 hours a day. It was light all day. Uh, I don't think we slept for over 48 hours till we finally <laughs> crashed. <laughs> I'm the same. I run myself a little ragged or run myself. I dang near lose my mind when I can hunt 24 hours like that. Uh, I did the same thing. I didn't sleep for the first couple of days. Yeah, but it, it's amazing, isn't it? Such beautiful country up there. And then the, the there's blueberries just everywhere, at least where I was. And then... Um, the the muskeg like leaves a little bit to be desired. I'm not sure how you walk on that stuff. Like you try to walk on the tops of it and about roll your ankle, and then in the bottoms of it, and the footwear's a real challenge as everything's wet up there. Uh, but it's just um, such a great time of year to experience the Arctic and caribou, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's it's you know, and I I've mentioned this before about this trip we just did, but my pictures, my videos, and my stories will never do that experience justice. And Russ and I talk about that whenever we're on the phone with each other. We, it was so epic. Um, the things you do experience, it is so different. Like that tundra, like you mentioned, it's like walking through 18-inch badger holes uh, <laughs> is the way I like to describe it. It's just brutal. But the scenery is amazing. You have that feeling of where we were. We were you know, 170 miles from the closest native village. Um, so you are literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, you're out there with the, the Arctic grizzlies, you know, the wolves. We had uh, uh, musk ox one night. He and I stocked up to 12 yards on a couple of old musk ox after midnight one night. Um, just an absolutely epic place. If, if For those that haven't experienced the Arctic, man, put it on your your bucket list to go experience it once. It, it is an amazing, amazing place. Man, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's like all these places we go and adventures we do is like I try to take a bunch of photos and it will bring back memories of the place yes. and of the hunt and it's great to look back on the the videos and the pictures, but nothing can do justice of standing there being immersed in that hunt in the middle of nowhere, like this challenge of chasing this new species of these caribou where, you know, their racks are so big on their head that they actually like bounce as they as they yeah. jog through the tundra like those experiences they you know it it's what makes you feel alive and it does give you such perspective on your life and your family and like you're able to come you almost come back like a changed person from something like that you know and it it's so it it's so like hardwired into it or we just enjoy being immersed in it so much that uh it's like pure enjoyment being up there and doing something like that and especially something so foreign like traveling to the arctic it's so different from the states here anything that we're used to uh that it's um it's a pretty surreal experience it is you know there were there were times after after russ and i both uh, killed our caribou and whatnot we were we were sitting there just at our camp and just looking at each other going, dude, this is awesome. This is absolutely epic. And an hour later, Russ had turned to me and go, this is awesome. <laughs> and it was just repeated over and over. And we, we had a unique experience. I, I don't know what you ran into on yours as far as, uh, you know, like quantity of caribou you ran into, but this trip of ours, part of the reason it was so epic to me, my, my first time to the Arctic, we saw maybe, we saw like 600 caribou over the entire week, which I thought was awesome. Uh, 
And on this trip, gosh, Russ, we had one day that we saw over 2,000 caribou in one day. Um, absolutely epic. Those big swaths just coming over the hills towards you, and they don't end. It's like, oh, there's 100 of them, 200 of them, 300 of them. And they just kept coming and coming. And I'll probably I'll probably never experience that ever again. I think Russ has done five caribou hunts now, and uh, um, he made the comment to me that, you know, we saw, we saw more caribou in a day than he's seen on all those other caribou hunts combined. So absolutely epic experience to just be immersed into. Yeah, man. Well, uh, yeah, sometimes we just hit the timing and we're able – like we're able to have these experiences or these moments in nature that are so rare that, like you say, can never be repeated. You know, it's like um, it, it's almost in a way like a, a hunting is almost like a, like like art. Like when you when you see it or what you create out there, what you see out there, it, it can never be duplicated. It's like one of a kind, you know. And so, yeah, when you are in them like that or like a, a muley hunt where I get three or four stalks in a day and I'm seeing bucks rutting or whatever the case is, it's like. You, you try to just enjoy it and go, man, this is unreal. Like, and, and, and a lot of the, the fun, like there's so much fun in the journey and the adventure and enjoying where you're at and the, the landscape, the challenge of trying to harvest the animals. But boy, when you find magic like that or like elk hunting, when you hear 300 bugles in a night, you know, and there's bulls going crazy and fighting, it's like, you know, you may work 20 days to see that, or like you say, Russ, five different trips to see caribou hunting like that. It may never happen again like that. And some of the elk hunting, like it takes me multiple seasons, but when you're really in it like that and immersed in it, like there's the, like, uh, the adrenaline is just off the, the charts and the excitement. And like, you just try to soak it all in, but yeah, a lot of these moments we'll never be able to recreate, but it sure is fun to like immerse ourselves in that. And what a great bull you took, like how'd it go down on your bull? Like there's so many eyes and I noticed those caribou, like some people say that, um, they're easy with a bow, but my experience has been like the way they avoid wolves up there is like they want to keep you at a distance. Like they're not going to run two miles away from you. But but my experience, they like to keep about 200 yards from you. And if they see inside of that 200 yards, they want to keep that distance and keep moving and can be really challenging in that open terrain. So like uh, you guys were seeing a ton of caribou and probably some really good bulls. Did you guys try to like move in front of moving herds or make stocks on them and use the, the topography and ungulation or how'd you get close to yours? Yeah, great question. And so and just for clarification, so I. I shot my bull this time with a rifle, but Russ shot his with his bow. Um, but as what we did, gosh, as we, as we, it's kind of ironic. We saw so many caribou. The pilots had flown a couple of days before we got there and hadn't seen a single caribou. And when they flew us in, we flew a big loop and we hadn't seen any caribou. And we were right where we're like 20 miles from where they were going to put us. We're like, we might be going on a camping trip. And we come around this hill in the plain and we saw between somewhere between two to 300 caribou. The pilot was awesome. He, he was trying to find the closest place to put us down. He got us put down within three or four miles um, of where they were. So our philosophy right off the bat was we better hunt this herd. 
Um, if you know caribou, you might see them today. It does not mean they are there tomorrow. If you see that, it's, it's not like maybe a, you know, a mule deer that you're like, ah, I want to maybe find one a little better. And if I can't, maybe I'll come back to this canyon and pick this guy up. You're, you're never seeing these caribou again, um, constantly migrating. So we had the philosophy, we better, we better check out this herd of two to 300. We better find what's in it and we better make a game plan to try and hunt them. And because it doesn't get dark that time of year, we were dropped off about 8.30, 8.45 at night. We had our camp set up by 10.30, and we were watching caribou at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, neither of us could sleep. Legally, we couldn't hunt till 3 a.m. the next morning. At 2 a.m., our packs were on, and we were hiking, <laughs> uh, heading to get out to those caribou. And it's exactly what you mentioned. We're using the topography to try and get out close to them. Um, and we had fog that morning. We had a little bit of rain and super heavy fog, which actually helped us move in close on some of these caribou. Um, and we didn't waste any time. We were, we were pretty nervous uh, where the pilots hadn't seen caribou and we hadn't, except for this herd. Uh, we weren't going to say, well, let's, let's hunt for several days and then pick something up. We're like, we, we better get on it right away. So that morning I, I actually shot my bull at 3:50 in the morning. Uh, and we moved in in that fog. We were seeing multiple groups of caribou. We saw a handful of really good bulls um, that were kind of off separate together. And we just used the topography to move in. And at that situation, we weren't moving into archery range yet. I just needed to move into rifle range. And we did. We moved down to within a few hundred yards of these caribou. And there was one that I, that I absolutely loved, the one I took. And I, I ended up shooting him. And then the way it worked out with Russ's, we, we were several miles from camp. And by the time we packed my caribou back to camp, we got to camp, the fog had lifted. You were changing out of sweaty clothes, uh, you know, tired, exhausted. It was, it was probably about four miles that we packed it back. And Russ looked back the direction we came and about five miles away, he's like, look, what, what's that over there? We get the uh, spotter and the binoculars out, and it's caribou coming over this hill. And they're heading our direction. And in hindsight, as the fog lifted and the sun came out, the bugs came out. And as soon as those bugs start hitting the caribou, they want rid of them. And these caribou were on a march um, for miles to come to snowdrifts. And we were on the edge of mountains. We're, we're not just in flat tundra. We're in kind of the rolling mountains and there's snowdrifts in those canyons. And those caribou are heading straight to those snowdrifts, and they'll just pile up by the hundreds onto those snowdrifts to, to get rid of the bugs, get the bugs off of them. And pretty soon as we're watching those caribou come over the hill, it's like, like I mentioned earlier, there's 200, 300, 400. Pretty soon we're like, there's over a thousand head of caribou, and they're coming our way. And we're like, well, we need to kind of keep tabs on them. Well, 15 minutes later, they're popping over the hill seven, 800 yards from us. Um, Russ grabs his bow and we take off. And we just we just use the topography to head, try and cut them off in the canyon above us. But uh, for those that have chased caribou before, you, you, can't, out, <laughs> you can't out walk a caribou. No. Uh, they cover a lot of ground in a hurry. So we couldn't get in front of them. They were already rolling through to the snow drifts, but there was enough terrain in there that we could work in the little gutters and the ravines and slipped into them. 
And that's what we did with Russ is we slipped down into a ravine and there's just caribou piling over the ridge. And I had a good time. I sat and filmed Russ stalking in on his caribou. I filmed his kill shot and the caribou going down with his bow. And it was, it was epic because there's literally a thousand caribou, you know, within a mile around us. And he's trying to pick out a good bull, a nice bull that he likes and slip in on. Um, and he was able to, got in there to, to 30 something yards and put an arrow in this bull. But we had enough topography that was great for archery with gutters, ravines, mountains, rocks, as opposed to just that totally flat tundra uh, that's really hard to deal with them in. And so, yeah, for, for an archery guy, the area we were was like heaven for a guy to be able to slip through that topography. Man, that's awesome. It's uh, so much of these hunts are, are timing as well. You know, like you yes. say, the pilots hadn't seen any caribou and you guys just showed up at the right time. And these caribou, for people, they kind of migrate opposite as you think of elk. So they migrate to the mountains in like August, September, and then they winter in the mountains because they get the wind blown slopes. And then they go back out to the tundra for the summertime because of all the lush feed down there. And in the tundra so you guys hit that migration absolutely perfect like timing can be so key on these hunts and i know you know my timing was pretty good on my hunts this year but i also had timing that i missed like i did a goat hunt early and so it burned like a lot of my early season mule deer time and so by the time i got to this early season tag that i drew that was a good tag they were already in secondary living instead of that alpin living which makes them a lot tougher and i found some good bucks but they were really timbered up and in lower country and this timing can make such a difference on hunts and then also like being able to uh capitalize or seize opportunities like you guys had seen those knew where those caribou were and instantly like you know russ has got those killer instincts and you do too it's just like you guys knew that hey they hadn't been seeing many caribou like we need to capitalize we need to to try to kill rusty a bull off this herd that we know about that's within three four miles of us so you guys didn't sleep and just right on the 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 dot of when you guys could hunt you were there trying to kill that really good bull that you killed and and you do you have to be good at seizing opportunities on these animals you know and also to know when to be patient but it's like man when you get a chance at your uh, your caliber of animal that you're really stoked with, like you, you got to try to make good on that opportunity and try to make it happen. And so many times, like like elk hunting is a perfect example. Is like elk hunting always changes. Like you're not able to keep into elk and be screaming for ten days in a row. Like the the rut, like ebbs and flows, and and elk are such migratory animals. Are they they're so uh they move so much country to different feeding and bedding features that things change and so you know i've been in an absolute rut fest for three days and it's like oh i'll kill a bull in here and then all of a sudden everything changes in the fourth day i can't find an elk for the next five or six days so it's like so much of this hunting is timing and then capitalizing on opportunities and you guys just like absolutely nailed it on this hunt with two just uh absolute specimens uh of great caribou bulls and so you finish that up and then um you got to antelope hunting which antelope hunting i think is some of the the funnest most thrilling exciting hunts i do every like they're just pure fun you know and 
I think those caribou have a lot of similarities with antelope, although you were into just the mass migration. But did yeah. you take on those antelope with your bow? Yeah, yeah, that was that's fun. And for people that that ever want practice with stalking skills, that's where I highly suggest go spot and stalk antelope. Um, you will fail, fail, and fail. <laughs> but it is the ultimate learning experience. And that's I, I wanted to do spot and stock antelope specifically this year with the bow. And I I I probably failed at least 10 to 12 different stocks um on that hunt uh before I got one to work out. But it is it is awesome because it's not like like you say, you might have a deer hunt that's super tough and maybe you only get on a, on a tough deer hunt, you might only get a handful of stocks for the, you know, the week that you get to hunt. Um, but with antelope, as long as they're in the area, you, you can do multiple stocks a day. Um, and they're tough. It's in tough terrain, usually, depending on if you do have some topography in that desert, etc. And it is tricky, but man, it is fun. And you learn really quick what works with stocking them, what doesn't. You become if you're not already, you become an expert real quick with, with being better at utilizing that wind direction. And you get really good at crawling on your hands and knees and then good at pulling thorns and cactus needles out of your knees later. Uh, but yeah, it was an absolute blast. That's actually the first spot and stock um, archery antelope that I've taken. Um, and it was a thrill. I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to hunt antelope any other way than that after doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh man, hundred percent, Rusty. Uh, like, uh, uh, yeah, you're you're speaking my language. I am all spot and stock on antelope. I've never decoyed. I've never sat in a blind. Like, I like taking the hunt to him. And you're you're right. Like, it it just sharpens your skill set so much. Like, different species and different habitat sharpens your skill set in different ways. In antelope, you spend all your time stalking and making plays. And then they're so good at close range at picking you off. It's like you just think about coming over that hill and they see you and they can see you oh, laying yeah. flat. They can see you like I've been laid down on my belly and they pick me out before. It's like I wasn't even coming up trying to shoot, you know, and and they do like you fail so much, but you learn so much hunting those things, you know, and so. Yeah, it just sharpens your skills. And just like you said, like deer, elk, you may only get a handful of stocks per season. Antelope, you get a handful of stocks per day. And, yeah. and to really start your season with, with antelope like that, man, it's just like in Montana, they give me a bow license. And I've been fortunate to draw it every single year since they started the tag almost 20 years ago. And every year, I never miss out on hunting the prairies. And I I attribute a lot of my bow hunting success to hunting antelope. Like a lot of my deer and elk success, I just sharpen my skills. I get comfortable in bow range. I make mistakes. I, I hunt them. But it seems like then I come into deer and elk season like switched on, knowing what I can get away with and what I can't. And if you can spot and stalk an antelope, well then, you know, it's not like elk or deer are going to be easy, but you just have a lot more to work with. And, you know, as sharp as deer and elk are, they're really good at picking you out, but they don't have like the eyesight that antelope have. And, and you yeah. just have more ungulation, topography and timber to work with. So, man, it seems like it just like hunting antelope, spot and stock with your bow really sets you up for success for the rest of season. It does. I, I was going to say the exact same thing. If if you can go out and and figure it out and be successful with a spot and stock archery antelope, your confidence level 
goes through the roof when you're going after a deer or an elk. It really does because they're they're not easy. No. Um, they are not easy, mm-hmm. but you do. You get. I mean, you you might get a couple of you know on the right season, you might get a couple of stocks on a deer, two, three, four, five stocks on a deer a year. But yeah, I've had days that I've gotten four stocks a day on an antelope, and then can do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it totally hones your skills, gives you tons of confidence. I I do a lot of stocking of elk, and that's how I feel. I feel like, man, for what it takes to go in and stock on an antelope, not that an elk is easy to stock, but um, it definitely feels easier than stocking an antelope to me. And so it makes my confidence through the roof. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. Well, Russell, you're speaking my language again, like stalking these elk. I'm uh, um, I'm quiet to these elk, and, and elk present a different set of challenges, right? It's like elk yeah. can really roll country, like they're big, like they use that mobility as an advantage in the mountains to separate themselves from predators or to uh, roll a long distance or a lot of elevation from bedding to feeding, and then they're a herd animal, and so you're dealing with these herd dynamics, and not just beating the herd bull, but you got to beat the 20 cows with them. Uh, but yeah. I love like being quiet, and um, you know, I just I called in a lot of bulls like younger in my elk career, but I just found as I started to target these herd bulls, as these herd bulls like you can catch them in the right behavior, the right mood, and call them in, but it may only be a couple times a season, and and usually they have cows that they're not interested in leaving, and a lot of these guys are really good at calling or getting in close or getting these herd bulls to bite, but I just found in my general units or high pressure units that these herd bulls were less responsive to calls, so when I started to really target these herd bulls like i did better like keeping the element of surprise not let them know i'm hunting them like just taking what the elk will give me and being able to work with what i have and i i really like stalking elk because it's um it's like such a it's like a moving stock it's like you see elk you get to where the elk are and then you have to adapt to that situation you're given and kind of rely upon your instincts but it's just like a lot of moving and relying upon your gut to tell you when to slow down or when to speed up and half the time i'm jogging to keep up and then at times i'm frozen for 30 minutes because a cow's looking in my direction but i just love chasing them that way and you find like when you hunt elk in their natural behavior it's just elk being elk to where when you call them in they're on such pins and needles that you can't get away with any movement but i'm the same way man i love to like spot and stalk these elk so it sounds like that's what you're doing and a hugely successful this year rusty those two bulls you killed are absolutely unreal like uh you had an all-time elk season man yeah it was a great great elk season for me it was great to be able to have two tags this year and i I am a massive believer in what you just said, Brian. I'll get asked all the time, like, you know, what what are you what are you doing to get in on these elk and whatever? And I occasionally, you know, I'll have a buddy or something with me, and they're busting out their call, and I'm like, man, if you're with me, put that call back in your pack. Um, I got a reed in my mouth to stop that bull when I'm going to put an arrow through the pump station. And other than that, I rarely call. Maybe to locate, I might call to locate one. Um, or you have a certain circumstance where you do a call, but I am the same as you. I, I started archery hunting elk when I was young, young, killed my first bull when I was 13. Um, and we were, we were sitting water and we started as like water hole guys. Right. And then my brother and I got into calling them. 
like up through high school, and it's a blast. Everybody knows it that's done it. It's absolutely a blast to call elk. There's nothing like one screaming in your face, tearing a tree apart. It is awesome. But I kept finding, yeah, we're we're killing these satellite bulls um, over and over. We can call in satellite bulls, no big deal. But those herd bulls, as you know, it's, yeah, you can get them to talk to you, but they're talking to you as they're moving their ladies the other way. And you end up chasing and chasing, and you've got to have that perfect circumstance to be able to call that herd bull in. And so when I got to the point, it's like, uh, I'm done killing satellite bulls. I want to, I want these herd bulls. It literally became, nope, I'm putting the call away. I'm stalking them. Uh, both elk I killed this year, two separate stories, but very, uh, very similar in their approach. The first bull I killed, um, I was just heading up the hill. It was a bad windy day. In fact, that morning I went out and and left the left the mountains real quick. Just brutal wind. I saw the weather was saying the wind was going to die down about 2:30 in the afternoon. So I just headed back into the hills in the afternoon, heading to the top of the mountain. The wind quit, and as I was hiking, I just heard a bugle. This is this is on September 1st, third day of the hunt uh, for us. This was in Idaho, and uh, I hear that bugle. And at first, it's one of those. Okay, I need to hear that again. So I sat tight. Heard it again, kind of pinpointed where it was at, figured it was a good four or 500 yards away. I don't know what this bull is, so I check the wind and I just take off. Um, different topic, but I think I'm similar to you. I'm, I'm a trail runner shoes guy. <laughs> and so it's tighten up the trail runners and I take off and head to there as fast as I can. And I'm not going to call to this bull. I, I won't. He, I find as soon as I call to him, they know where I'm at. Um, instantly they know where i'm at whether i make good on that calling scenario or not they know where i'm at i'm pinpointed and i don't want them to know so i worked all the way into where i figured i was about 150 yards away then i start creeping slow waiting for him to talk i'm one of those guys that's hear him talk cover half the distance and then i sit tight until i hear him again then i cover half the distance and do it again and i got into where i could see him and a few cows um and you just kind of wait till they're behind trees, their heads are behind trees, and I creep a little more, check the wind again, creep a little more, check the wind again. And that's what I did. I, I just snuck into uh, 62 yards on him, was comfortable with that shot, um, decided he was one I wanted to take, shot him with him, never knowing I was there. He made it 40 yards and went down. Um, ne- never called to him, ne- never even blew a reed to stop him, just shot him in his natural environment. Um, what would have happened if I'd have called to him? I, I don't know, but I've not historically had success at calling in herd bulls. Um, so I would much rather do the sneak in. I still get to have the enjoyment of hearing him scream and talk, but I'd rather him not know where I'm at. Yeah, man, I love it. Uh, good going. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, you still like. I think guys really like the interaction of calling back and forth, but just like you stated, a lot of times they're gathering up their cows and going away from you. And when they, you know, you might think, oh, let's, let me just blow a call and see what happens. But you're right. You let them know that you're hunting them or let them know your location or put them on edge when you do that. And and when you can hunt elk in, in their their natural environment, when they're just feeding and rutting and they don't know they're being hunting – hunted that's like a dangerous tool but you did like so many things right there i love your tactic of hearing them moving halfway like so much of us hunting them 
in this rut is this, you know, like using this auditory where are they located and then moving in. And, and I love your halfway and then you wait for him to bugle again and halfway and you start to build this picture in your head of where they're headed or where they're going or how they're moving. But it's so crucial what you're saying. Like it's so easy to to hear a bull and think you're going to spot and stalk and you just go in too quick and you blow them out. They blow out of the country and you got to start all over. And so you learn like through this experience of chasing elk this way. And, and just like you have to learn calling elk with the right setup and the right sounds are like stalking elk. You have to like learn what the right pace is and when to slow down and when to speed up to keep with them. Like you have to learn all this stuff. And so like where you played it perfectly is like that slowing down, like inside, like when they can see you or catch movement or moving slow, like you have to see them before they see you. That's the game. And they're constantly like moving through the timber and you're trying to move with them in this mobile stock. But then you have to know when to really slow down or when you catch a cow, then you might totally freeze and you might be there for a half an hour until they move over the rise. Or like you said, when their heads are behind trees or they're feeding you know you can get like a couple small steps in but you learn like what you can get away with and what you can't and you kind of like take what the elk will give you and you don't push past that to like keep that element a surprise but man it is like this this beautiful dance of predator and prey that you have to play with these elk stalking them like it's a real art that you have to hone like over the years of hunting them isn't it it is and it's in my mind, it's it's experience. You just got to go and go and go. And every time you go, you learn a little more. I used to be a really conservative elk hunter before where I really take my time and go way too slow. Um, you know, like, for example, one of those situations where a bull's raking a tree. And let's be honest, his eyes are rolled back in his head. He's got noise. If the wind's in your favor, you can run up to that bugger. And I would be tiptoeing in. Um, and I had a lot of close calls. It used to be, man, I was so close. I was so close. I was so close. And as soon as I started realizing I need to be more aggressive in my hunting technique, and obviously you still have to know when to tone it down, that's when I started killing more bulls. Now, did I mess up a lot? Absolutely. I would definitely screw up. You try and learn from it and do it again. But I started being more successful when I learned I needed to be a little more aggressive, I quit having close calls and started putting animals on the ground more often. And, and part of the trick to, to elk with me is they're herd animals. So it's all those eyes and, and ears and noses. It's not just that bedded mule deer that if you master the wind and you can be stealthy and work in, you can get on him. It's, it's uh, well, for example, the second bull I killed this year, there was two, two herds that merged together that morning. So the bulls were going at it. There was probably at least 10 different bulls in that group. There was over 40 elk. The two big bulls, the one I killed and another big six, were full on going at it, fighting, watching it from over a thousand yards away. And then mid-morning, they kind of all settled and calmed down and they bedded in an area I never expected them to bed in. They didn't go to their normal thick timber bedding area. They bedded in these ravines. And the bull I was after, the one I ended up killing, he was the one I was after. He was my target. Um, and I I had seen him on a trail camera early at the beginning of the season. I hadn't laid eyes on him for 20 days, like my, my physical eyes on him. And it was, there he is, 
I need to capitalize on this today. I, I need to kill him today. But it's a herd that I'm obviously not going to call him out of. All these cows, all these bulls, my opportunity was going to be to stock him. But now there's 80 eyes, 80 years, you know, 40 noses to smell. And so you you have to really work it. And that's what I did. I, I took a long route around to get the wind in my favor, saw where he had bedded in thick, thick brush, and had to work into that herd. And it's exactly what you were describing. You're constantly on the lookout of where's the closest cow? Where is she bedded? Um, am I going to be stuck and sitting here for an hour till she gets up and moves or whatnot? And in this situation, I got stocked into about 50 yards of where he was, but he was in thick, thick brush. And I thought I messed up. I took a step heard a stick pop to my right and I turned and looked and there's a six point bull bedded staring at me. Um, and I'm like, Oh crap, I am busted. I'm busted. Well, that guy jumped up and took off through the brush. And I'm like, I just ruined this. And in hindsight, it was the best thing ever because they had all that commotion that morning. It set my bull off when that bull got up and ran, somebody was coming into his herd. Somebody was coming to take him. And he started screaming. He got out of his bed. Elk started moving all around me. I start watching. A, I watched a little six-point bull, five-point spike, and the cows come out of the brush. And then this bull came out of the brush, just screaming, mad at the world. Um, we, we've probably all done this, but I made a little bit of a mistake in that I, I was sitting there ranging all the elk coming out and was ready when he came out. And he came out a little closer. And I kind of goofed up on that, and I shot, and I hit him high. I straight up hit him high, and he ran about 35 yards in all that commotion, stopped, and bugled with an arrow that just went through him. And that other big bull that was there that morning came running to him, and they went into full-on epic battle, Brian. I mean, the classic videos you see with them pushing, brush flying, dust flying up in the air, and I knock an arrow and I go running up and I'm trying to get an arrow in him while they're fighting. And I can't. His butt's facing me. Uh, the next one's butt's facing me. There's brush flying. You're starting to get nervous. Like, I better stay by some trees. They might run me over. They have no clue you're there. And all I, all I could assume in hindsight is he thought he took an antler when that first arrow hit him because he'd been fighting all morning because um, he didn't act like he'd been hit at all. And I could not get a shot. I'm at 30 yards, under 30 yards, just over 30 yards. I, I couldn't get a shot. They finally stopped. And I drew on him again. And the other bull stepped behind him. And I'm like, man, if I clean pass through him, I'm going to hit that other bull. I can't take this shot. I let off. And he finally moved around some brush. I ran around the brush, got the reed in my mouth to stop him. Tried to stop him. And he would not stop. And so with him just walking at about 30 yards, so it was close enough, I dared take it. I, I put an arrow in. He was quartering away right past the back rib and just buried into the front shoulder on the other side. He went about 100 yards and went down. Um, totally epic. Absolutely lucky. I will never say I totally got that bowl off of my skill. <laughs> I know there was some serious luck involved in getting in on him, but it's what you were describing. It's dealing with other bulls. It's dealing with all those other eyes, ears, and noses, and the smells, and being willing and able to adapt when something does go wrong or change something. Um, 
but it boosted my, my confidence. Now, next time I go stock a bolt, maybe I'll screw it up. Um, and that's totally fine. I'll go stock another one the next day and eventually I'll make it work. But those are the epic experiences I get from stocking them. And that experience was just as epic as any bowl that I've ever called in and been able to take from calling him in. This experience was just as epic, if not more epic for me. Dude, that is beautiful, Rusty. Uh, that's surreal, man. That is such epic action. Um, yes, yeah, so many things you you did right. Like I, you started by talking about how you had to be more aggressive and you got more opportunities. I'm the same way on elk where it's like, see a bull I want, go make a play for him, adapt to the situation I'm given. And then you're able to kind of build these rules. Like you mess up enough and spook enough bulls. You're like, okay, like following them into the thick timber, into their beds when they're all bedded down looking for danger, that isn't working for me. Like I got to hunt them more in the open in their feeding features when they're on their feet or when they're yep. moving through the timber when they're on their feet and I can catch them and kind of move with them. My exception to the rule is when they bed in open terrain like your bull did. Yeah. Where When I know where they're at and I know where the elk are at, well, then I can sneak into that position and take it slow and pick out the cows as I go like you did. So you kind of like build these rules around what you'll do and what you won't because you don't want to blow them out and have to start over. But you do have to give yourself an opportunity or a chance. And to do that, you got to go make a play and then adapt to the situation you're given. And then as you as you came down and moved in, like those satellite bulls. They can either work against you or for you. And I had the same yes. experience this year where I had one that I was stalking, and he was a great bull. I had hunted him for three days, and it finally this evening he comes out, and I catch him, and he's glunking, and he's chasing this cow, and they go over the rise, and there's a satellite bull in there. And as I slip around and I get the wind dry, and stalking bulls, it's kind of like calling bulls, but you almost need this higher understanding of what the wind's doing. And so for you, stalking your elk – you were more towards the middle of the day where you probably had that uphill thermal where you were able to approach them from uphill and come down into their beds. This was the evening time where the mountains were getting shaded, where now the thermals were changing, coming down, circled around, got a good wind, started closing in. And just as I'm closing in, I catch that satellite bull, and he's like 30 yards away, and he's walking by me. And so I freeze. He doesn't see me. And this five point walks over and then walks over the edge. I think, okay, I'm good. I got to get to where that bull is. And then I can see the herd bull as he's just screaming his head off. And it's so intense. And so I take like a few steps. And what I didn't realize, that satellite bull had gone over the edge and it circled and come back up around. The satellite bull caught me trying to make my final move. He busted into the herd. The whole herd went down in the bottom and up on the other side. The whole herd never even knew I was there, and that satellite bull ruined it for me, you know. And so you have that encounter, but then it wasn't but a week later that that the satellite bull actually, like, brought in the herd bull that I ended up killing. Like, the herd bull crossed it 70 yards above me in the trees. There was, like, no opportunity for a shot, and I thought it was over, like I was going to have to let him go over the edge. And then here comes this satellite bull next to these cows at about 40 yards from me. And that herd bull couldn't take it. And he circled back around to chase that satellite bull and actually chase that satellite bull to like five yards of me where I was able to crouch down and he didn't see me. And then the satellite bull walked by and I was able to like stand up and then able to put like a good heart shot on that herd bull. So those satellite bulls, they can work against you or for you depending on the circumstance and your circumstance 
like you described it perfectly as you were a rut fest that morning. And so that big herd bull thought that satellite bull running. He's like, hey, that that satellite bull's coming in. He's trying to get cows or he's fired up, which got your herd bull up. Uh, but yeah, man, just amazing. And then I love like um, listening to you with those two herd bulls fighting and trying to get that good shot on that bull like it is such chaos like trying to get shots on these elk and those herd bulls they have such a knack for making the right moves for being just outside a range or on the far side of the cows or they stop just with the tree in their vitals or like your circumstance where he's fighting with another bull and his butt's towards you and now the other bull is behind him where your arrow's gonna pass through it's like navigating all these challenges to like finally get that shot and you have to get good with like being comfortable inside bow range too, like letting these situations develop. Like when I was young in my bow hunting career, I used to like try to force a lot of this stuff. And you, you, you know, elk are a big target, but you have to wait for the perfect shot on them. Like they take a perfect arrow. They're the toughest animal on planet Earth. You got to get lungs, heart, or liver and have a good angle on that. So you really have to be patient and comfortable inside bow range. And a lot of times these elk will look in your direction or catch a little movement, and then they look and they'll stare at you to, like, confirm that movement before they spook. And if you're able to hold still or just be comfortable in close, like, these situations will develop, and then you can capitalize on them. And so that's, like, exactly what happened to you is you had to let this, like – uh play out in front of you before he finally like offered that shot what a great bull too what an epic season with just two giant bulls both taking spot and stock with your bow man that's amazing yeah they're fun i man is there anything better than elk i i'm mostly a a solo guy because i do a lot of stocking and stuff on elk but man the fun level and enjoyment level for me with elk is far and above beyond other animals to me. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely love and appreciate like a big mule deer. In fact, I probably appreciate a big mule deer buck more than I do a big elk, but my fun level in chasing them is higher with elk. It's just so, so fun uh, to get in there and learn. And you do have so many experiences and then elk kind of like we were talking with antelope, but hunting antelope can make you a better hunter all the way around as we mentioned, and I believe the exact same thing about archery elk hunting. Um, I've, you know, I've killed elk off water holes. I've killed elk off calling them in. I've killed them off spot and stock. I've shot them off wallows, just straight ambush. And you have to learn so many skills to be able to be a consistent, effective archery elk hunter that those skills totally translate over if you're hunting mule deer, if you're hunting whitetail, whatever it is they translate over and between things like elk and antelope i think those are like the ones that can make you an amazing archery hunter no matter what the species is <laughs> yeah 100 percent, man you're spot on spot on about like the thrilling encounters like god half the time i just walk away from a morning hunt even one that i didn't kill a bull and like yeah man that is why i bow hunt that was the most thrilling exciting hunting a guy can do i'm making moves i'm running there's sweat pouring down my brow and it's like two three hours it's just this epic action inside you know like this you know the 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 elk too with like five foot of antlers above their heads and just the the chaos that you get into and the aggressive nature of hunting them it's not this 
methodical, calculated play. It's like this aggressive, adapt to the situation you're given play. So, man, I am with you. It's like there is no more exciting hunt than than elk in September, early October, and and every year, like when I get to that time of year, and I, I like I'm a self proclaimed muley guy like i love hunting mule deer i love hunting them early season late season and i really think late season rut hunting mule deer is really similar to elk because the they're constantly moving but i don't know that auditory and the bugling there is no more exciting hunting than like chasing elk and i also like what you mentioned like you know how it makes you better I i feel like it's so much problem solving like like those elk, those big bulls are so tough to kill that sometimes it feels like mission impossible, but you have to like think outside the box of like how you're going to get in close to them or where you're going to approach them or where you're going to cut them off. So much of it is like problem solving. And then, you know, they, they move so much terrain that elk, you're either in them or you're not. Either there's zero elk in the area or you're into a party like you are and not all the time. Sometimes you just find a herd and one bull but elk are just like all or none. Either you're into them or you're not. And so, you know, they're tough to locate as well. And they take this whole different skill set to be able to locate, to be able to be uh, real mobile with, with your operation, like not be in the same spot, to be able to cover country, to get really good at like, you know, hearing them bugle or uh, glassing them up. But it's so much of it is like morning and night and then you know you can hunt them middle of the day or sometimes they're fired up or like your circumstance where you bedded them in a spot that you could see you hunt a middle of the day but a lot of the middles of the day are really slow where you just have to put all your effort into this morning and night and into these spots yes. to locate them but yeah man there's like not much more that there's nothing funner to me than they are yeah elk. And and Brian, you know how you do have those lulls where you end up taking a nap all day, right? Because you you are focused on the morning and the evening with them. And I've found one of the strategies I'll do a lot is if they are going off, you're into that rut. Um, I, I killed a, a really good bull last year and I watched him um, the day before he had about 24 cows, was in a position and the wind of the way it was going, I, I wasn't going to get in on him. So I stayed patient, stayed back, watched him bed, learned where their bedding area was, sat out there that night, but it was hot early season. They didn't come out before dark. So the next day I was back into that same area where I watched them come from feeding to bedding area. And I was, I was in there at three 30 in the morning and I just sat there and listened. I sat and listened to his bugle the day before I knew I could recognize it. And so I had him located, you know, by 3.45, 4 a.m. in the morning in the dark and just put myself in like, you know, a 607 yard distance of where I could hear him. And I slowly moved throughout the morning as they moved a little bit so that come legal shooting light, um, I was within about 400 yards um, of him. And, and, and you can't you can't go do that with deer. You can't do that with another animal. And it gives you an opportunity that you you really can do that in the dark, do the locating, et cetera. I still never called to him. I put myself in a in a position where I was catching them heading back to that bedding area and happened to play that game with the wind where I had to really angle in on him into where I could get a shot. But it's like the one animal that I have no problem being out there at four in the morning and listening and trying to locate and put myself in that good position as opposed to just waiting for the sun up so I can start glassing and 
you know, the opposite with deer, glass that deer, watch him until he goes to bed and then try and sneak in on him. Um, with the elk, I love that I can play that game during the night if I want to. Yeah, same. Um, you can tell your experience hunting elk is like, um, yeah, I do. I hunt them a lot in the dark. And not that I'm looking to shoot them in the dark, but right. they rut the hardest at night. And so if you use that night to locate, and so you have to almost get on the elk schedule where you are taking a nap the middle of the day. And then you're going so hard, you know, in the evening, but then at night, you're also listening for bugles to try to locate some for tomorrow's hunt or early in the morning. And that's how I killed my bull this year is I heard him in the dark after a hunt. And then I was up there in the morning like you that 3.30 or, you know, I was a little bit later, 4 or 4.30, heard him bugle. And then I just worked in on him in the dark all morning long to where then the lights came on. And, you know, I'm 400 yards away and I know exactly what the wind's doing and I'm able to creep in as they're still on their feeding because elk will feed around right away in the morning and then they start moving to their bedding and they'll feed as they move. But boy, if you can catch them in that feeding pattern, they're real susceptible uh, so yeah, like, uh, uh, being able to get on the beat of those elk, like being able to hunt and locate in the dark is a huge part of being successful, especially in these, you know, high pressure units, you know, and, and, um, yeah, I use the same thing, man. It just, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's wild as I've never met you, Rusty, which it's really fun to connect with you on a podcast, but it's wild how many similarities we have when we're chasing elk and uh, kind of our approach to hunting them uh, are, is real similar, even though we're hunting different places and it, yeah. have never discussed it. You know, it's just wild to me. Yeah, it's, it's so fun. They're, like you said, you can hunt elk and have an unsuccessful day and it's still successful like you have so many cool experiences even when stuff doesn't work out with them and each time it's just learning like watching them you learn how they act and I find over the years and years I don't have to think a lot about what my strategy is going to be anymore you you do it enough and spend enough time you just go into automatic mode um, because you know how elk act you know what they historically do. You learn some of their patterns of where they go and uh, just get to flow with it. And then it starts to be really, really fun. When I was younger and it was always, ah, what should we do? What should we do? And I spend so much time trying to make a decision. Um, we usually failed a lot. When you can get to the point where you're not having to take time to make a decision, you just react. It starts to get really fun and you'll start to see way more success. It's, it. it's like listening to your gut, right? Your hunting instincts, yeah. like you develop these instincts and then, yeah, it isn't, it, it isn't so black and white, but you just start making decisions based on the information that you have. And just like the year before, uh, or that bull that you'd mentioned where you were seeing him from his bedding and his feeding, your gut told you to hold on and don't make a play yet. And then the next day you went and made a play because you knew what he was going to do and where he was going to be. Yeah, you kind of listen to your gut and listen to your instincts and let that guide you. But you're right. Like in my early days, I used to second guess, like, what is the right decision? Do I wait? Do I make a play? And then you second guess yourself as you're making a play in. But boy, when you're just listening to your instincts and you're just hunting and, and you're just you're not really thinking about the decisions you're making, you're just making decisions because – there's like a hundred right decisions that you have to make to arrow a bull. And so if you can like, uh, like, what is that? Like where you outthink your coverage or, or that's outplay your coverage, but you just like, you can outthink yourself out there where you just have to make plays, make mistakes. You learn from it. And through that, it like, um, 
you're able to like develop these hunting instincts that then you can rely upon and listen to. And you, you just don't, not everything is this calculated think through what you're going to do. It's kind of just reacting to the situation you're given. hundred percent, hundred percent. So it's, it's time, right? Time and experience, the more time and experience you can put into it. Like people might look at a, a social media or something of Brian Barty and go, man, that guy always kills it. And you do. But they don't they don't see all the failures. They don't see all the time you put in. They don't see that you failed this many stocks and whatever to get that one that worked out. But it's like, man, if you can just put in time and and go with your gut, follow those those gut decisions and put in the time and fail and fail. Pretty soon you get to where your confidence goes through the roof. And there's days that you're like, yeah, I'm going to kill this bull. You like have that much confidence instead of those early days of. I don't know if I do this, is it going to work? Um, confidence to me, co- confidence in going into it is everything. If I believe I'm going to kill that bull, man, there might be a really good chance I'm going to kill that bull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rusty, you're speaking my language. Confidence is king. Like just knowing that you can kill that bull or knowing you can make that shot, like believing in yourself. And yeah, once it starts to happen a time or two, yeah, you just expect it, you know. I expect to come into elk season and arrow a bull, as do you, because it's happened yeah. before, and I know I've got keen instincts, and I know I can close, like I'm clutch when I get the opportunity. And so believing in yourself, like then you can put more effort into it too. Like you know the process, you know it'll come together, and you'll get an opportunity. You just have to continue to grind. And so, yeah, I cannot see a bull for three, four days but I just know eventually I'm going to get my opportunity. So you just like keep driving hard and keep putting this effort in. And eventually it just seems like that effort pays off in an opportunity and a, and a clean arrow into a bowl, you know, but yeah, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. It's like the ultimate challenge and you never quite master it. Like I, I, you know, like you get proficient and you get confidence and you know, it'll happen, but it's like you still make mistakes or I'm still not a hundred percent or it's like nothing, you know, it's never quite mastered and it's always this huge challenge and I'm not sure what my hurdles are going to be, but it's just like the more you work at it, the more time you spend doing it, the better you get at it, the better you get at reading win, at locating elk, at stalking elk, at being clutched during your shot. And so you're like working at all these different skill sets and the better those skill sets get, like the better chance you have at success every season. But the the nice thing about it is, is like you never stop learning or I never stop improving like it. And I think that's like why I fell in love with it is like I'm always working to be better or uh, to have a better chance when I do get those opportunities. But yeah, it's one of the beautiful things about bow hunting, man. Yeah, you can never be perfect at it, right? Like uh, as soon as you think you are, you will get your teeth kicked in. It's it's bow hunting. You will get them kicked in, but it's can I have my teeth kicked in and still have that confidence because, well, I just learned something new. And now that I know that, you're, you're in trouble, Mr. Elk, because I just learned something new from you today. And I'm going to you know, put that arrow, so to speak, in my quiver and use it against you. I, Brian, I got a question for you on your elk. Do you? Because I know you're. I'm correct, aren't I? You're you're a trail runner, shoe guy. We'll switch to a gear topic quick, but yep, hundred percent. Um, I I know a lot. You know, a lot of guys will do that with their mule deer hunting and stuff. Quiet down, but I'm I'm a trail runner guy with my elk and stuff too. You're hunting your elk in your like trail running shoes, aren't you? Yep, I am. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, Gosh. it seems like elk, like I hunt almost all my species with my shoes. Like I used to take them off when I was younger, like stalking mule deer. Uh-huh. And there's a circumstance if it's really quiet out and I've got a bedded muley, you know, I may creep into my socks or I used to use like a minimalist running shoe, like for better feel of the ground and things are quiet. But I've noticed that it's, it's almost the pace at which I hunt. Now, running shoes do give you a way better feel than boots. They don't yeah. have the hard edges. You can feel the ground better. Uh, you're able to move really quietly in shoes. And so, yeah, man, I, I like do everything in shoes, right? I'm like you. I'm a trail runner. I work construction in shoes. Don't tell OSHA. But I just feel more <laughs> agile in them. Like I grip to the roofs. I'm more agile and I can feel my feet placement. And so when I started hunting in boots, it felt foreign. Like these ski boots are stiff on the edges and I, I just wasn't stocking as good. And so I started wearing shoes on my easier hunts and I like a waterproof shoe. I like a, mm-hmm. a good sole on it that's going to grip, not a slick sole, like a good Vibram. But um, in the same breath, like I started stocking in shoes and having way more success and I'm able to kill almost, like I'd say, 99% of my animals now are in my shoes not taking them off and elk i never like to leave my shoes or leave my pack because i'll end up a mile away and then have to come back for them every single time even if i think i got those elk dead to rights over the rise the minute i leave something then i'm two three miles down the trail or whatever so yeah i just i love to hunt in these shoes and i've actually taken them to places, you know, guys will say, well, yeah, I could use shoes in the prairie, but, you know, if I'm going on a, a tougher, more extreme country hunt, I'm going to have my boots. And, you know, which can be true, but when you trail run or you use shoes a lot, you build like this strength around your ankles and things yeah. to where you don't twist your ankle. And so I'm able to take them in the most extreme environments. And even my BC goat hunt this year, like I had shoes up there and I really feel nice. like a, a pound on the foot is like 10 on the back and and us that are really going for it we might take 20,000 steps in a day or 30,000 steps in a day and if you got an extra pound on your feet that's like an extra 20,000 pounds you lifted with your legs that day so I just love a lightweight pair of uh, of shoes. I like them waterproof so I don't get dust and debris in there. The, yep. And I like to keep my feet dry. I'll wear gaiters if the grass is wet or if there's snow. But yeah, man, I'm I'm tennis shoes all the way, running shoes all the way. It sounds like you're the exact same, huh? I am. You know, I, I may have some, you know, winter hunts or something that I'm putting boots on because I'm in, you know, deep snow. The same thing. I'll do gaiters and stuff if I need to. I I'm sold on for the same reason. I feel like if I got my boots on, I do wear out quicker. I'm, I'm getting to become an old man. And the older I get, um, I need all the energy I can get when I'm chasing elk, for example. And I wear boots. You start adding up the steps like you're talking about, the extra weight, how many steps you take, how many pounds you're lifting. It does take a toll on you. And then I find, in fact, if you found this, I find if I'm, if I'm with somebody hunting, <laughs> And they're wearing boots. It starts to drive me nuts because they're loud. Um, following somebody down a trail or walking, and I can hear their their boots dragging that extra bulk that you don't have that feel to the ground in. And uh, I start getting annoyed by the sound of their boots. So I I absolutely love the shoes. I was doing some hunting with a, a buddy this year that's new to archery hunting, and went out with him a few times and took him. And that's I'm like. Buddy, on your list for next year is a pair of trail runners. You you, you got to switch to those, and and uh, he will. 
and he's going to absolutely love it, guaranteed. Yeah, it seems like everybody that switches over loves it, too. And a lot of people are worried about ankles or a lot of side hilling. And, you know, shoes can leave a little bit to be desired on a side hill. Like, I get it. They don't dig in like a boot does. But eventually, you, you like, build up all those muscles, the supporting muscles in your knees and in your leg muscles and in your ankles. And where I notice... Like the transitions tough for people is their calves will get sore when they first switch from boots to shoes because you're yep. using more of this articulation and using more of those calf muscles. But once your body gets used to it and you get used to shoes, like there is nothing better for covering country and miles and elevation than shoes yeah. once you once you get used to them. So, man, I'm with you 100 percent. And it seems like. It, it was a bit slow to catch on. Now it seems like it's catching on and guys are really yeah. using them. But, yeah, it's like the one change I made to my hunting that it, that I've seen such huge benefits out of. And, and not only for miles or leg fatigue, but the stalking, like you say, and the feel of the ground. You're so much quieter, and the rubber's like a little bit softer on the edges where it doesn't crunch sticks or make as much noise. Like you're just able to, to be quieter like moving in so i think it's a huge part of my bow hunting success is using those shoes as well it is and they, you know the traction on them is amazing you got you got grip for both directions right up and down and i found there's less sliding like accidentally sliding and rolling rocks when i'm doing a stock with those like you say those like harder vibram soles or whatever there's i feel so much more secure in my foot placement and my steps and i think the big key to it for people is put those shoes on and start wearing them in the spring, wear them all summer. Um, don't just, Oh, it's elk cutting season. I'm going to throw a pair of shoes on, let those muscles and tendons build up and get used to it. So you have the confidence in those shoes instead of just throwing them on when the season comes where get a couple of pair, wear them, wear them all year. I had, gosh, it's just two years ago. Now I, I tore out my Achilles tendon completely blew it out uh, not a rupture like it, it was a complete tear and uh I, I had surgery in july my doctor told me you know i do all these surgeries on dudes in their 40s that don't realize they're old yet and kind of laughed at me and i said well i got a hunting i got an antelope tag in august and he's like no you don't i'm like well i got an elk tag in september and he's like no you don't <laughs> and lo and behold i I went, I went antelope hunting and elk hunting in a surgical boot. I, I broke two surgical boots during elk season that year. And you want to learn about how hard it is to climb hills and stuff in a surgical boot. It's brutal. But after I got that surgical boot off and was trying to rehab, I went to trail runners. And, man, there was nothing better to help build up those muscles and rehab those muscles after all that downtime on that leg. And, and I felt I got more out of just switching to trail runner shoes to just rebuild back from my injury than anything. And then at the same time learned, I want to hunt in them all the time anyway. This is way better. You've been doing it for a long time. I've only been wearing the shoes for a couple of, a couple of years now. I think this is my third season wearing them, but I am sold 100%. Yeah, it's so good to hear. Uh, yeah, man, that's wild. And Achilles rupture, like those injuries can be as tough on us mentally as physically. But I just think it's, uh, I think that is so awesome that you hunted all year in your surgical boot and broke two oh. of them. That's just amazing, man. But it makes you appreciate feeling good and being mobile and, and active and how important it is, especially as, you know, all of us are getting older and to uh, really avoid those injuries. It's like the body adapts to the stress 
stress we put on it. And so we have to continue, you know, it doesn't have to be trail running, but, you know, uh, weight training, you know, like keeping our bodies in motion and mobile is so important. And then, you know, I think we keep healthier during season and have, you know, again, back to confidence. You have so much confidence in your body that you can do those big miles and big elevation and that your that your body will adapt to it or uh, keep you safe during it. But, um, yeah, man, that's wild. I love hearing that. 100%. Yeah, don't do it. Don't don't blow your Achilles tendon out, people. It's it's not fun. It doesn't rehab quick, and it makes it really, really hard to to stock or chase out in a surgical boot. Oh, that is brutal, Rusty. Well, glad you're all recovered and healed up. I bet yeah. you feel really good, like you say, that uh, nothing better for PT than using all those muscles and getting them used to it. I bet in those shoes now you got a ton of confidence moving around the mountains. Yeah, a ton. Un- unreal. I, I, I'm still not back to what I'd say 100% um, from that injury. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be back to a hundred percent what I was. Um, but man, I'm, I'm about as close as I can get. And, and I, I truly believe the shoes have made a big difference to be honest. Like some people might be like, dude, it's a, it's footwear that doesn't make a difference. It really truly has for me. And I, I do, I feel way more confident cruising around the hill because you're tentative after a bad injury like that. You're, you're pretty tentative to jump off a rock, you know, jump off a log go busting through the brush, kind of lose your balance and whatnot. And um, I'm so much more stable in those shoes. And I know I've built my ankles and everything way stronger than they were. The, to be honest, the boots were, you know, they're, they're a bit of a band-aid. They, yeah, they can help keep your ankles and stuff, but it, it meant my ankles weren't getting stronger because they were just supported all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was nice to take those, take those off and let them build up the muscle and strength on their own. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, Rusty, an uh, hour has already gone by. Um, I think yeah. I could talk to you for two or three. So we have to stay in touch. I'll pass on my number to you. you got to come on again. Uh, but, yeah, deepest congratulations on your season, man. It, um, I appreciate it. It, it just uh, it comes through honing those instincts and those skills and that experience. And so, like, I know you've got a ton of years into hunting elk and spot and stalking them. But, yeah, just amazing bulls and the caribou and the antelope. Man, it was absolutely all time. So it's like... Really fun to get on here and, and uh, compare and contrast notes with you hunting those things and uh, how many similarities we have as well. So, man, I just can't thank you enough for your time, Rusty, and jumping on this morning and sharing with my listeners, man. It's amazing. Yeah, appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, Brian. Yep. All right. Well, let's keep in touch. And, um, yeah, thanks again. Sounds good. Okay. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Uh, fun conversation with Rusty. Thanks again for him taking the time and being on and sharing some of the knowledge that he's earned over the uh, a lifetime of hunting. And so, um, man, I just really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks to him. Thanks to you guys for listening in. Uh, make sure to be on the lookout for that new goat film. It's going to drop, I believe, December 22nd. Uh, Eastman's Hunting TV, Beyond the Grid. There's probably six or eight other hunts of mine that you can check out on there, and also some great ones from Dan Bacar and the other staff there at Eastman. So check those out. Um, yeah, thanks again to our sponsors here. So Zamberlin Boots. Uh, again, my favorites are the Saluth, and um, I like the Free Blast, but uh, really like that Anabasis as well. So you can check that out. I want to thank Matthew's bow. That new lift is shooting amazing. 
uh, really working through it and working with it to build a relationship with it. But I'm shooting some great indoor scores and then some insane groups outside at range. Um, man, this thing is going to be an absolute shooter. I'm so pumped on it. So go check them out. Go shoot them. See if it's a good fit for you. Thanks to Matthews, uh, Black Ovis, and thanks to Camo Fire. And thanks to Eastman's for all their support of the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, um, man, yeah, just um, kind of wrapping up my season here. I may do one more mountain lion hunt with a buddy. So looking forward to that and uh, pretty much have all my big game hunts wrapped up for the season. So just starting to work on my bow uh, and just getting back to that consistency, that running every day. Last night did a few miles. I've been running every day. Did a big one this weekend. And uh, really making sure I'm consistent with my um, lifting as well. Uh, Push-ups, pull-ups every single day. And, um, man, just getting back to putting in the work, the consistency, the dedication, and working hard towards my goals each and every day. So every day trying to make improvements to my bow hunting that'll pay off come hunting season. And uh, so I'm enjoying this off-season, starting to play around with applications and tags and lining up hunts for next year. And it's a, it really is a lifestyle, like being a bow hunter, being a consistently successful bow hunter. And uh, I'm just looking forward to putting in all the work this off season to make sure I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll uh, come next year, come 2024. So it's an exciting time for me and really enjoying it and uh, also catching up on some of my chores and family time and things of that nature, which is a, a big part of my life as well. So um, yeah, doing good over here on my side. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, thanks again for all the support. Thanks for the questions. The Q&A on Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal has been going great. Check out that podcast. And um, man, with that, I'll check in with you guys next week.